Again, we'll be reading uh, from First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they, they disobey the word, as they were destined, destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Thanks so much, Nolan. So good evening, everybody. So our normal practice of preaching through scripture is we choose a book of the Bible and go through it line by line to see the whole counsel of God and what he has to share with us. And however, what we're doing this fall is, since we're a new church, just starting off, is we're establishing our identity. So who are we? A church can be about a lot of things. So especially as we lay these uh, foundational layers as a church, we all have to be on the same page with what are, we, you know, what are we ultimately about as a church? What are the things that we are going to put our flag in the ground for? And what we said two weeks ago in our first service is that our mission, so the central purpose of what we're here to do, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ who live in light of the gospel. So the gospel is good news. This is what makes Christianity unique from every other way of living. So it's not another moral program we subscribe to. It's not another philosophy. Fundamentally, what we are about as Christians is we're responding to something that has happened in history. The good news that Jesus was really fully God, fully man, came, lived, died, rose in our place for our sin, ascended. And when you trust in him, you can be adopted into God's family, not based on your merit, but all based on the merit of Jesus. This is great news. So Jesus has come, and he will come again so that we can dwell with him in glory. And so what we're about here is, what do we do in the middle? Because if Jesus really came, and he's really coming again, that changes how we live in the present. We don't just privatize our faith or put it in a drawer. It affects every single thing we do. That's living in light of the gospel. You guys are going to hear us like re repeat that over and over again so we get it, okay? And so what we're doing now in the three weeks after that initial mission statement for our sermons is we're looking about, okay, so how, how do we make that happen in our community? Because it doesn't just happen. We never drift into holiness. So last week we looked at corporate worship, okay, so what are we doing here on Sunday, and how that forms us, and what we're going to do today is we're going to look at community, the subject of community, uh, because it's a crucial way that we form disciples, ourselves and others, who live in light of what Jesus has done, and so as we jump into this topic of community, here's how I want us to think about it, so we're a great church. Can I, can I say that? Can I, can I brag on you guys a little bit? Like, I mean it. These aren't just hollow words of praise. Uh, you guys are a, a wonderful church, uh, and I, I love being 
a, a part of it. Like, not a day goes by uh, that I don't consciously think about how grateful I am to be in the same community as you guys. And so this is, it's a really wonderful thing. And so as I was thinking about today in, in community, we have a really wonderful and unique opportunity as we are setting the foundation of this church um, to take community very seriously in the way that Jesus defined it and wants us to live. So, because here, like if you're being honest, I think sometimes here's how you can view community and here's how I can view community. So sometimes the church can be, hopefully I'm not alone in this, but sometimes the church, so when life is going well, you know, the church is, is great. When things are going in the, well in the church, it's, it's great to be a part of, of course. However, sometimes the, the church community can feel a little bit like this unfortunate byproduct of knowing Jesus. You know, so like you, you get a paycheck and unfortunately you have to pay taxes. Well, we received the good news of Jesus and now unfortunately sometimes we have to be a part of a community with people who aren't like us, who peop- with people who can irritate us. And so what can happen is um, you just drift into seasons of apathy or maybe you enter a new life stage, maybe you start dating or you get married or your job picks up and suddenly community doesn't, it's not very convenient anymore. And you just start to, drift away, or you're here, but you're not very present. And so what we're going to see today in this um, passage from 1 Peter is, is, is community messy? Yes. Is it often inconvenient? Yes. Jesus never promises you an inconvenient life. Okay, however, there, there is a glory to community, uh, and community is also an, an irreplaceable component of, of growing as a disciple and knowing Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at today as we look at this passage in 1 Peter. Uh, this passage in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it's uh, it's one of the best places to look at, like, what is the church? And it's very dense, as you probably gathered as you were hearing it read. So what we're going to do is just give a very high-level look at these 10 verses. We're not going to be able to get into everything, unfortunately, but just a, a high-level look at community. And so here's the three things we're going to see. So first, we're going to see the priority of God's community. Second, we'll see the practice of God's community. So what, what are some of the ways we live it out? And then number three, we'll look at God's pursuit of his community. First, the priority of God's community. Second, the practice of God's community. And then number three, uh, the, the, the pursuit that God has uh, for his community and of his community. Okay, so first, number one, the, the priority of God's community. So in verse four, uh, what does Peter write here? He says, as, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter here, he's writing to a group of believers living in a society that uh, finds Christianity very strange. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't understand why people would become a Christian, so not too different from, from our society. And he's encouraging the body of believers, like what it means to be the church. And if, if you notice, the language that he's using here in verse 4 and 5 is temple language. Okay, so when he talks about like stones, you're, you're a spiritual house holy priesthood. And so what Peter's getting at here is before Jesus Christ came, the temple was where God would meet his people. So it was in the temple that you could experience God and know God in a way that was very unique compared to when you were outside the temple. However, Jesus Christ then came into the world. He was the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. That's why we no longer make sacrifices, thank goodness. So Jesus Christ, he was, he was the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. And then uh, Peter describes him as, as the cornerstone in verse 6. 
So behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And so that's a prophecy from Isaiah. And what a cornerstone was, so a cornerstone is a, is a massive block. It had to be flawless. It had to be impeccable. And it was the first stone that was laid on the foundational layer of a building. And it had to be perfect. So then when every single stone was built on top of it, the structure would be stable. It wouldn't crumble. And so what Peter's saying is Jesus came into the world. He's now the final temple. And he is the foundation of the New Testament church. So Jesus is the foundation of, of this body here and every single body of, lo- of, of local believers. And in verse 5, when he says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a, spir- as a spiritual house. So when he says living stones there, what he's saying is now each person in the church is a living stone. He uses that modifier living because when you trust in Jesus, you're not just adopting a moral philosophy, but the very power of God, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, living power enters you. So you become a new person. You don't just become a nice person, you become a new person. And it's the body of believers that come together to form the, the new temple. And so what, what Peter is saying here, in short, if we're going dista- to distill this down into just one line, is just as in the Old Testament, the way you would experience God and mature as a believer was by going into the temple. So now in the New Testament era, you cannot experience God and mature as a believer apart from community. You, you can't fully experience God and mature as a believer apart from community. Now, when you trust in Jesus, is that an individual thing between you and God? Yes, absolutely. But then when it comes to maturing and growing in the Christian faith, faith an irreplaceable part of that is being in community. So not just on Sundays, but also during the week. You guys really believe that? So we're going to pause here because, so the air that we breathe here in Western culture is like the the story that we live in, you could say. It's all through the individual me. So we talk about this here a lot at Doxology, um, but as you listen to this, don't just think about people out there, but think about how this narrative affects you. So we, we... we love ourselves in the West. We love expressing ourselves. We love discovering ourselves. This is why we invent and love things like the Myers-Briggs because it, in, in the Enneagram because it tells us about who we are. Okay? Everything that we do from where we move to the jobs we take to the person that we marry, it's all about how do I become a better version of me? Okay, so that, that clashes with what Peter's saying here with you know, actually a huge part of, of maturing in life and growing as a believer isn't just living life as an individual me, but entwining yourself with other believers. And so what, what Peter's saying is, he's just asking you, like, take a look at your life and how do you view it? Do you view it as an individual pursuit? And if, if you're married, yes, it includes your spouse. If you have kids, it includes, your, it includes your kids. But is life pretty much about me and discovering myself and fulfilling my dreams? Or is it about enmeshing myself in a local body of believers to help other people experience God and know God, and for me to experience and know God. So that's how God designed it. And so I was thinking about this as I was reading. So recently I've, I've been reading this book. It's, it's a newer book uh, called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. So some of you know who he is. He's a pretty popular uh, writer for the New York Times. And he recently wrote this book called The Second Mountain. It's a social commentary on the lives of Americans, and it's not a perfect book, but, um, and I'm not, this isn't a pastoral endorsement of David Brooks and everything he writes, uh, but he had some, he had some really, he had some solid things to say in there that I thought 
hit on the nose what we're talking about here. And so he says, in, in the lives of Americans, especially younger Americans, so think, you know, 20s, 30s, and probably 40s as well, there are two primary paths you take in life. And he describes one path that you take is the aesthetic life. And so if you're on the path of the aesthetic life, essentially how you view life is, a, is as a piece of art. So as you go about things and experiences, you ask questions like, is this interesting or dull? Is this pleasurable or painful? Is this pretty or ugly? And so what life turns into is because you're just, you're looking to um, experience a lot of things that are pleasurable and pretty is, you know, so you, you focus on not gathering possessions necessarily, but experiences. So you do things like soul cycle and you go to beautiful places and you go out for great food and great drinks with people and you take pictures of yourself in beautiful places. And he says the downside of taking this path is what happens is you're extremely unmoored because your life is just about going from experience to experience to experience, but you never fully land on anything. You never really commit. Like, you don't commit to a group of people. You don't necessarily commit to a job. You don't commit to a place because, well, when you commit, it takes away the ocean of possibilities from, you know, having other experiences. But that's one path, the aesthetic life. And the second path he describes is the, is the insecure overachiever. And so the insecure overachiever essentially approaches life like a continuation of school. So, you know, a lot of you here, you were very good at school. And, you know, so in school, you, you take exams, you get pats on the back, and, you know, you, you pass certain metrics. But then after you graduate school, you essentially continue that. Because you're like, okay, I know how to do school. I, I set a goal, I achieve it. So then your job becomes basically, you know, receiving as many gold stars as you can, uh, receiving as many pats on the back as you can, and getting as many people in your, in your field to, um, you know, to, to applaud you, to commend you, and you just move on. But, it, but, but it's always about me, me, me. Like, what's the next thing, I'm, what's the next thing I'm, ach I'm achieving? And as I was thinking about our community, I think for most of us, we're not, like, each of you aren't in one or the other. I think we're a fairly decent composite or hybrid of both. Because, I mean, you guys are, you guys are very gifted. You're, you're bright, you're skilled, and I, like a lot of you are very educated, and, and you're doing great in your career, which, which you should be, by the way. But also, most of you, if not all of you, understand that, yeah, career isn't everything. Overachieving isn't everything. And so you appreciate things like family and friends, and you prioritize things like great experiences with people you love, and you should. But what Peter here is, is posing when he's talking about how you experience and, and grow in Christ when you're knit together in a community is he's saying what he's not advocating for is a monastic lifestyle where you retreat from, from pleasures and experiences. And he's also not saying don't work hard in your career. In fact, most of First Peter is about how do you engage the world that you're in. He's not saying like draw away from those things, but what he's asking you is what is your primary pursuit in life? Like, when you envision a great future for yourself, what is it that you envision? Is it, about, is it mainly about a combination of a great career and great experiences, or is it about being enmeshed with the body of believers that you're around and helping them grow in and treasure Jesus Christ? And he's saying that the, the pull of the, of the story that you're in, you know, whatever city you're in, it's, it's, it's powerful, it, it's attractive, but instead, let me invite you into a far greater story than just living for your own personal interests. Let me invite you into a far richer story, a far more enduring story, than just trying to expand your individual self. 
so that, that, that's the priority of God's community is, yes, enjoy life, work hard. However, like what is one of the main things you focus on? Helping people in the community that will have ripple effects into eternity or just getting the best life I can in, in the present moment? So that's, that's the priority of community. So, so next, let's look at the, the practice of community. Um, so <laughs> Peter gives some, some practices to do. So what does it look like when you're actually living in, uh, amid the body of believers? And there's a lot in here. Uh, we're just going to go over a few. And so as we jump into this, know that the aim of these practices that Peter's going to talk about, like why do you do what you do? It's not just to, to be nice people, uh, but there's a deliberate purpose. So one is for you maturing and helping others mature. So he says like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's obscure language, but he's essentially what he's saying is for the gospel to take root deeper in your heart and for you to live in light, in the go- live in light of the gospel, you need to partake in these practices that take place in a group of people. And then number two, the reason we do it is to be attractive to the watching world and to help draw other people toward the beauty of our Savior. So you'll see in verse 9 where he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as you hear a sermon like this, it's easy to think, oh, okay, so are we just supposed to be this insular community? No, we're, we're to be engaged in the world. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. But as of now, just think about the power as you create a counterculture with people here and other Christians, not, not just on Sunday, but during the week, it will make people kind of question and tilt their head and go, okay, what, what is it about you all? Why don't you just live for self and for other people? Okay, and so what are some practices that he gives? Uh, so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So let's talk about envy. I think this is something that we don't realize how much we can wrestle with it. And very rarely when I'm talking with somebody today, Stevie, I'm really struggling with, with envy. <laughs> but, but it happens all the time. And essentially what, what envy says at its heart is when you're prospering, I feel bad about myself. Like, I want your gifts. I want your career. I want a love partner like yours. I want a home like yours. And so what, what envy creates is you're constantly comparing your circumstances or your abilities to other people that, that you feel like have it better. And so what envy does, and here I'm, for this, for envy and slander, which I'll talk about next, just credit where credit's due, I'm borrowing from a pastor named Hunter Beaumont who teaches in, in Denver. So he's just said some things that are really helpful in how this stuff plays out in community. So one of the things that envy does is it creates a community where it's unsafe to prosper. Right, so you're, you're worried about celebrating something that, that happened in your life, or you're worried about displaying the gifts and using the gifts that God has given you because you know other people might retreat from you or become bitter toward you because of good things that are happening in your life. And so just, just ask yourself questions like, do I, do I think a lot about how poorly I have it, either with my gifts or my possessions or the people in my life, and I'm constantly looking at people who have it better than me? Or am I constantly, um, like, not actually celebrating with other people when they do something well? Or am I encouraging them in their gifts? Or do I feel threatened and insecure and jealous when somebody comes along who's a lot better than me in something that I do well or has a better life than me? So we have to be a community because we've been redeemed by Jesus and been given infinite treasure in him where we're not... Envy doesn't characterize what we're about. It is so freeing 
to be in a community that's not marked by envy. Can I just say that? Where you can celebrate something good that's happening in somebody's life and actually mean it? Okay, so there's envy, and then Peter also says, refrain from all slander. Okay, so slander in this context means to put people down. And what slander does in a community is it, it makes a community where it's not safe to struggle. It creates a community where it's not safe to struggle. Because why? If, if you open up about, say, a sin that you're continually dealing with or an area that you're weak in, you know that people in the community, they, they, may, they may use it to their advantage, okay? Or they may gossip about you to other people. And so, yeah, you just, yeah, you'll tell people some things, but you won't tell them the things that have really wounded you, the things that you're really wrestling with, because, well, you know, I've just been vulnerable. And what if somebody exploits that to my disadvantage? And so my encouragement to you all as we continue for as a community to be a community where you're, you're not marked by slander. You might think you're not, you may not slander people, but just think about questions like this. So when I think about people, do I tend to fixate on their weaknesses and flaws, or do I focus on their strengths and the things that they're good at? Or when I look at somebody, do I, do I amplify maybe the time that they irritated me or wronged me? Or do I celebrate their strengths and encourage them in their strengths and the things that they're good at? And one thing I would, I would love, I would love, and this, this isn't just pastoral rhetoric, rhetoric, like I really mean this, guys, because um, it's, it's unfortunately uncommon in a church where you can come in and actually bare your soul to people. And so for us to be a community where you can talk to the people around you about the real things that you're battling and trust that they're not going to use it against you will be a, a wonderful thing. And so if you ever catch me doing that, okay, call me out. If we catch each other doing that, let's call each other and be a place where we can actually be vulnerable with each other to help one another know Jesus. As you, as you think about envy, as you think about slander, and then the, the final one we'll look at is the idea of being present. So notice that Peter, he says, you're being built into a spiritual house. And so and you, you yourselves, like living stones, are built together. So it's the idea of all these stones are built together, knit together. Now, when stones are cemented together in a house or a temple, stones spend a lot of time next to each other. Okay, they're not in and out. They're constantly present with each other. And this really is what makes everything else be able to happen. Because the way you can develop trust with somebody to actually be vulnerable, um, the way that you can encourage people and speak into their life, it can only happen through being present. Like regularly present. Not just at church on Sunday, but during the week as well. And so, like, you, you'll hear a lot of talk about um, quality time. So it's really important, right, that you spend quality time with people. Now, that's true. But one thing that I've learned is what's more important, whether it's with a, whether it's with a child, well, I don't have a child yet, but um, you know, people have told me whether it's with a child, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with a friend, it's not as much about the quality of the time that you have with them as it is the quantity of time. Because there, there's things that can only happen when you're regularly present with people. And so for you all, I think this is one area we, we can grow in. Is so you all, I think you all, you all love coming to worship service. It's so important. Talked about that last week. Is Just think about, are you making a point to spend regular time with people in the community? 
during the week. So this can be in a community group or a discipleship group. If you're not in one, please join one. And, and also outside of that. And I know you guys are, are limited. So you hear talk like this. It's like, all right, Steve, well, I, you know, I'm here to serve on Sundays. And then I'm supposed to be, you know, reaching out to my coworkers and being hospitable. And I'm in a community group already. So, like, you know, and maybe I'm married or I have children. <laughs> like, I only have so much time. I only have so much time in the week. And so, so yes, I acknowledge that. Peter knows it. But here, here's the purpose. So first, recognize you are a limited being. So embrace that. You're not going to be able to do everything that you want to do. And you're, yes, you are going to need, to, if you're married, you have to spend time with your spouse. That's not with other people, okay? You have to um, do well in your career. However, just look at, are you making a regular, concerted, deliberate effort to spend time and just be present with people in the community? For some of you, that might, might look like a couple extra hours a week or one extra afternoon every other week. Because it's only when you are regularly present with believers that these kinds of things that we're talking about, knowing Christ, experiencing him, can happen. And so, okay, so we talked about not being prone to envious, slandering, being present with people. And I was thinking about, like, why is this so hard to do? These are very simple things, are they not? But they're, they're very hard to do. Why is it so hard? So one reason it's hard is, yes, because we live life through the lens of the individual me. That's a big one. But here's another reason I think why this is so hard is because so often when you're just living in the mundane with people in the church, and, you know, you're at a community group with somebody or you're hanging out with somebody after church or, you know, on a morning or something, often it feels like, sometimes it can feel futile or it doesn't really feel like results are happening. You know, we are a people that, that's driven by results. So, like, we're either we're suffering or struggling with something or somebody else is and we don't see much progress even after spending time with somebody or it seems like we or other people just aren't maturing as quickly as, we, as we'd like to see them or whatever. It doesn't seem very remarkable. And so just over time, it's like, well, you know, I could experience something a lot more pleasurable and exciting elsewhere, so I'll do that instead of spending time with somebody in the church. And I was trying to think of a metaphor that helps to illustrate how powerful it can be when you're just regularly present and doing ordinary things with people in the community. And what came to mind was the Dark Knight trilogy. So how many people here have seen the Dark Knight trilogy? Can you raise your hands? Like, Nick, really? Okay, we're going to have to do something about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. okay, so a fair amount, of, enough people here, here, here have seen it. So in the Dark Knight trilogy, and if you haven't seen it yet, sorry, it's been out for like 15 years. So I'm just going to tell you a fair amount of <laughs> what happened. So, if you, Nick, if you need to leave, you can. Um, so, Dark Knight, right? So, it's about Batman, Bruce Wayne. And what happens in the first movie, Batman Begins, is so little Bruce Wayne, he's a little child. He goes to a show with his parents, and then at, as he's leaving the show with his parents, his parents are murdered right in front of his face. And he is, you know, he's, he's mortified. And he's taken, you know, dazed into a police station, and there's a police officer, right? Commissioner Gordon. And I don't know if he was commissioner yet at this point, but it's, it's Commissioner Gordon. And so little Bruce, he's just sitting there like in utter grief. And Gordon gets down on his knee and he puts a coat around little Bruce and he just says, it's okay. It's okay. And that's all he's able to say. And then he, he moves on. And so Bruce Wayne grows up to be Batman, right, protecting people who can't protect themselves. And what happens in what I think is one of the most moving two minutes in cinematic history is, so 
Bruce or uh, Batman and, and Gordon have, they formed a relationship. So they, they talk to each other a lot, but Commissioner Gordon doesn't know who Batman is. But he talks with him all the time, but he doesn't know who he is. And at the end of The Dark Knight Rises, the third movie, Batman, he has a ticking you know, time bomb attached to his aircraft, and he's about to fly out of the city to sacrifice his life for the people. And Commissioner Gordon, he looks at him, and he knows Batman's about to die. And he just says, you know, I never cared who you were. But don't, shouldn't people have a right to know the hero who saved them? And Batman looks him in the eye, and he says, a hero can be anybody, even a man doing something as simple and reassuring as putting a coat over a young boy's shoulders to let him know the world hadn't ended. And Gordon, like, he staggers backward, and he realizes, like, oh my gosh, Batman is, is little Bruce Wayne. And what he realized was, <laughs> in that moment, years ago, that probably felt so futile to Gordon when he put that coat around little Bruce's shoulders. That small act of kindness gave Bruce enough hope to not fall into despair when he had seen his parents murdered and to go on and become the man that he became. And that's how it works so often in the community. It's just small, seemingly unspectacular acts of kindness that help the people in the seats in front of you and behind you and to the left and the right of you not fall into despair when this life is so often so hard. So helping one another grow in Christ, it can be as something as simple and reassuring as when somebody says to you, I'm doubting who God is, and I don't even know his love for me. I, I feel lost, and I feel lonely. And you say something as simple as, you, you, know, you put your phone away, and you just look them in the eye and say, it's okay. I may not have answers for you, but I'm here to listen. It's doing as something as simple and reassuring as when somebody says, my spouse just told me they cheated on me, and they want to divorce me, and I don't know what to do. And you cry with them and weep with them and say, why don't you just come over for dinner? It can be something as simple and reassuring as just encouraging somebody with, a, with something simple that you've seen in their life and how you've seen Christ use them. It can be something as simple and reassuring as when somebody says to you, hey, I'm so sorry I said this about you or to you. Will you forgive me? And you say, yes, I will. And you mean it. These are the things that help us persevere all the way to the end when we see Jesus face to face. And so don't be distracted when it seems like some of the things you do in community feel so futile. They're far more powerful than you can imagine. Okay, so finally let's look at the, the pursuit God has for his community. Because to be a community that's like this, as we've said, it's, it's difficult, it's hard, and Peter knows this, and Peter was somebody who, at one point, you know, he, he didn't like the church, and in fact, his identity was built on the fact that he would be more committed to Jesus than the other disciples. Remember, he said, Jesus, they, they may betray you, they may leave you, I won't fail you, and then Peter failed the hardest, and so Peter, know, and then Peter turned into a man who, I mean, was a, he loved the church, he ended up dying for the church. And so, P 
Peter knows that to, to be a community that, that we're talking about, where we're not about our own interests, but about the interests of others, refraining from envy, slander, being present with people, is we have to be a community that has a continual, like, re-experience of grace. Because when you, when you look throughout church history, a, a community that is a, a vibrant community that lives for others, they always have the heart of the gospel at it. And so what Peter says in, in verse, verse 9 and 10, or just verse 10, rather, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a quote. And it's, it's actually, it's kind of irritating that this translation doesn't put quotation marks in there. But Peter is quoting Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. And why would Peter quote Hosea when he's talking about what you need to constantly remember to, to be the church, to be the type of church that he's calling you to be? And what Hosea about is about, it's about a prophet named Hosea, and God comes to Hosea and he says, I want to use you to show my people the kind of relationship I have with them. Because what happens is, is my people, they, they sing my praises in the temple, but then they go off and they, they reject me, they don't live for me, they, they commit spiritual adultery by loving other things more than me. And so he says, Hosea, what I want you to do is I want you to go marry a woman named Gomer. Now, Gomer was a prostitute. So he says, I want you to marry this woman, and I want you to love her, and love her, and love her. And so Hosea goes, and he marries her. And she cheats on him. She gets in all kinds of adulterous relationships with other men. And she has children with other men. In fact, Hosea named one, one of the children, not my people, not mine. And God says, I want you to pursue her and pursue her and pursue her and keep loving her. And finally, Gomer, she gets in a, a relationship that is so degrading with the man because she, she keeps leaving Hosea that this guy puts her up on one of those slave pedestals to sell her as a prostitute. And God says to Hosea, I want you to go buy her back. And Hosea goes, he buys her back he says you will be my wife and you'll live with me and I'll love you and the reason why God does that and the reason why Peter is now quoting that story in 1 Peter is because God says that, that that's the same type of relationship I have with you like you, you come and you, you sing my praises on Sunday and then you go out into the week and you reject me. You don't spend time with me. You love other things and other pursuits more than me. But instead, I pursue you, and I pursue you, and I pursue you. All the way into the person of Jesus who came into the world in the most expensive purchase in the history of the world on the cross, Jesus Christ said, I'm buying you back. So that you will be mine. And I will be your God. This is, a, 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 this is astounding. So then when, when Peter writes, you, you are, a, you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, you are God's most treasured possession. Right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Before you hadn't received mercy, now you've received mercy. Once he's saying is when you trust in Jesus because of what he's done for you, your name is no longer cursed, lost, slave, sinner. Your name changes 
It's no longer cursed, it's blessed. It's no longer lost, it's found. It's no longer slave, it's free. It's no longer sinner, it's daughter, son, treasured possession. And so the the reason why this is a magnificent group of people and the person sitting next to you is is a magnificent human being is not because they're not hard to love at times. It's not because uh, sometimes it's just, it's difficult to be with them. The the thing that makes this so magnificent is every single one of us has been pursued. And if you've trusted in Jesus, you've been captured by an impossible love that doesn't make any sense. That's what makes us a a body, is that once we hadn't received mercy, but now we've received mercy. And this is to be a beacon to the world that proclaims God's mercies, proclaims the excellencies of he who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And so let's be a community that doesn't live for the individual me, but to live a life that helps others in small and ordinary ways experience God and grow in Jesus Christ refraining from simple things like envy and slander and and being present. I said, hear it again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own treasured possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, I uh, just praise you so much for the beauty and glory of who you are and for what the church is with Jesus as our cornerstone. I repent of all the ways I don't view the church as what you're talking about here in First Peter. And pray that you will help all of us, Lord, just to take even a small step this week uh, to love others in this community as we've first been loved and pursued by you. And as we do it, help us to be a church that is uh, defined by the love relationship you have with us. And may we be a community that draws other people who don't know you to Jesus. It's in his name we pray.